This morning, after a number of breaks, we are going to return back to the letter of Paul to the Galatians. We will resume our series in Galatians this afternoon. This morning, we hope to cover the verses 23 to 25. We'll read all of chapter 3, including those verses, to situate ourselves again in this letter. Galatians chapter 3. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, 
so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was regarded until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now, our text this morning is verses 23 through 25. And um, it is true that 25 looks like only half of a sentence, but um, in terms of the thought flow that is included. So our text is verses 23 through 25, ending with the words, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this morning we've gone back to reading from Paul's letter to the Galatians. It's easy to get lost in the details, isn't it? He's writing in response to a very specific situation in a specific church at a specific time, in a specific culture. We don't have nearly as many details as we would like. He was also writing to people who knew him personally, people who were familiar with the kinds of things he said to them. And we're not. All of that can make it difficult to understand what he's writing about. Sometimes it's easier to think that it all comes down to just being a moral person. All you need to do is go to church, live a good life, Everything will be fine. And of course, if that's how you think, then you will tend to focus on morality also in the lives of the people around you. Your parenting will tend to be corrective, for example. You may be critical of others who don't see things in quite the same way that you do. In other words, your faith will be focused on what are the rules The problem with focusing on the law of God as the centerpiece of Christian living is that you can inadvertently miss the gospel. In a reading today, the Apostle Paul contrasts law with faith. He says the law was our guardian until Christ came. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. The law was our guardian to lead us to Christ, and the law was a guardian to leave us with Christ. That's also how we will approach this text this morning. Now remember, Paul was writing to people who for the most part did not come from a Jewish background. They were Gentiles. They were not Jewish. 
But a lot of these Gentile Christians wanted to be Jewish. You may remember that there were false teachers, Judaizers as they were called, who had come to the churches in Galatia. And these Judaizers had taught the people if they wanted to become Christians, they had to become Jews first. They had to be inducted into the Jewish religion first. And so Paul in our text is explaining to these people what it was like being a Jew. He was a Jew himself as well, of course. God had greatly privileged the Jewish people by choosing them among all other nations and making them his own people. They'd received the law of God at Mount Sinai from the hands of God himself. Nevertheless, says Paul, to be Jewish was to be held captive under the law. Elsewhere in Romans, he wrote that whether you were Jewish or Gentile, the law condemned you. He says in, in Romans 3, all, both Jews and Greeks, are, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. So, looking at verse 23, when, when he says we, we were held captive under the law in verse 23, he seems to primarily refer to the Jewish people, but by extension, that would refer to all people who are condemned under the law. That's every sinner who has ever lived. He writes, before faith came, we were held captive under the law. Now some of you might ask yourselves, how, how is this before faith came? How can this be? Is he suggesting that the Old Testament believers did not have faith? Is he trying to suggest maybe that, that they were saved by works and now that Christ has come, we're saved by faith? Well, that can't be correct because in verse 6 of this chapter that we read, he, he clearly says that Abraham believed God. In other words, Abraham had faith. He was saved through faith, just like the rest of us. So what does Paul mean when he is talking about a time before faith came? And if you look at this passage, the, the verses 23 through 25, or 26 even, um, the word faith actually gets used four times, once in each verse. It gets used in two different ways. In verse 23, it's essentially an abbreviation for the whole gospel, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. The gospel is the good news about the perfect life, the sacrificial death, and the triumphant resurrection of Christ, and the salvation that he promises to all those who believe in him. That is the gospel and the entirety of the gospel and the response that it demands is all referred to in this word faith. Imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. But then in verse 24, he narrows the meaning of faith and he narrows it down to only our response to the gospel in order that we might be justified by faith. And then in verse 20, 25, he goes back to the broad definition of faith, including everything. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. And then in 26, he goes back down to the narrow definition. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So your personal response to the gospel is, uh, is in the foreground here. Now maybe you're sitting here this morning and thinking, that sounds confusing, like some sort of a Greek thing or something, but... It's not actually, we do the same thing in English. We might say that a Christian is a person of faith, for example. Often in, um, 
Um, the media, you might, or maybe you've heard it before as well, someone being referred to as a person of faith. And when we refer to someone as a person of faith, it's a, an abbreviated way of saying that this person believes the gospel, including everything that the gospel teaches, and lives accordingly. And Paul is using the same word here. He's using faith in the same way here. And now maybe you wonder, this is kind of detailed, why do we need to pay attention to this? But this, if you want to follow Paul's thought flow, then this is really useful to know that he might be referring in some places to a broad definition of faith, including, let's say, the whole Christian religion. And then in some other places, faith refers to just or specific response. And context makes that pretty clear. So Paul describes this time before Christ came as a time when God's people were held captive under the law. Still looking at verse 23 here, captive under the law. And the law of God refers here not just to the Ten Commandments, but to the whole law of God and all of its minute regulations. When people practiced that law, it separated them from the nations around them. But that separation was also a prison of sorts. Maybe some of you have recently read the book of Leviticus in your family devotions, and you felt overwhelmed by the sheer volume of, of laws and regulations and decrees and commandments and stipulations that it all includes. It was very complex. Every part of life was hemmed in by this law, and the net result was that everybody at some point would fall guilty of breaking the law. Everybody eventually had to be purified again through the sacrificial rituals. And so there's a fairly negative um, kind of a, 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 an image in the background in verse 23, and that carries over into verse 24 when he refers to the law as our guardian. This word guardian is a special word. It's a little bit hard to translate, which shows in the very diverse translations that you find in the different versions. For instance, the King James Version uses the word schoolmaster. The NKJV uses tutor. The RSV uses custodian. And the ESV, of course, uses guardian. Now, all of these words have a very different meaning in English. So, what is Paul getting at here? What does this word actually mean? And in Greek, the word is pedagogos. So who was the pedagogos? The pedagogos was a man, generally a slave, who was part of a wealthy family. So if you were a boy who was born into a wealthy family, you would be handed off to a wet nurse. And she would take care of you for the first little while until you were old enough to be handed off to a nanny. And that nanny would look after you until you were about six years old. Then, somewhere around the time that you were six, you would be handed off to the pedagogos. And he would be your shadow, basically, for the next ten years or so, until you got into your late teens. And the, his job, the job of the pedagogos, was to make sure that the boy would be raised properly. So the pedagogos would go everywhere with him. He would teach the boy table manners and how to behave. He would guard the boy from pederasts when they went to the public baths. Uh, pederasty, which is 
pedophilia focused on boys was a normal and accepted part of Greco-Roman culture. And it was his job, the pedagogos' job, to basically shield the boy from pederasts when they went to the public baths. He would carry the boy's books when the boy went to school. He would make sure that the boy learned his lessons. And if the boy misbehaved, if he didn't learn his lessons, if he didn't do what the pedagogos told him to do, the pedagogos would punish him, and that was general, generally physical punishment, um, up to and including a whip or caning. So you can imagine how that went. The pedagogos, the guardian, would always be hovering on the edges, always be watching every move, making sure that the boy behaved. He would never have freedom. It was only once he got into his late teens and learned some responsibility, then the pedagogos would start to back off. And this, says Paul, is what it was like for God's people living under the Old Covenant. The law was there to guard them. It was there to guide them. It was there to discipline them until the truths that it taught had become second nature to them. And it took a long time. And of course, in the history of Israel, it was not successful. The law was like a guardian with an unwilling boy. It could not restrain their behavior. It could not curb them. It could not hold back their sin. And things became so bad that finally they were sent out of the promised land and into exile. But even then, even in exile, even when the remnant came back, the law was still there like an old pedagogos, confronting them, correcting them, punishing them, rebuking them. And finally, it was ingrained into their spiritual and cultural DNA, so to speak, as they waited for the Messiah to come. Here's the thing you need to realize, says Paul. That, that law was our guardian, our pedagogos, until Christ came. It was never meant to be a permanent solution. A young lad eventually grows into a young man. And if he learned... He doesn't need the guardian anymore. Paul is saying the people didn't, didn't learn very quickly. But when Christ was revealed, the people were to put their faith in him. And then the law did not need to serve as the guardian anymore in the way that it did before. Because they had come into a new phase of salvation history. And once you get this straight in your head, you start to see how wrong Paul's Uh, Jewish opponents were because these people wanted to go backwards in the history of salvation. They wanted the church to to go back into the early days, living under the oversight, the watchful eyes of the guardian. They wanted the church to go back to what Paul calls slavery. They didn't see the Jewish law as a temporary thing at all. They wanted it to be permanent. They didn't understand that when Christ came, there was a shift, a fundamental shift in salvation history. What you need to realize is that the coming of Christ was a shift in the history of salvation, but it was not a new history altogether. Before Christ came, God's people were held captive under the law and imprisoned. The law was a harsh prison guard. There was a voice of God demanding righteousness. 
but it was also a sign of grace. The purpose of the law was not merely to confront people with failure. The purpose of the law was to lead us to Christ. How does the law lead us to Christ? By making it so obvious that we are sinners that we have no other place to go. The law says no to everything that your sinful nature says yes to. It confronts you with your inability to break with your sinful nature. It accuses you when you sin. It makes you completely hopeless when you try to fight that sin on your own. And it's only then, only when you come to the very end of yourself, that you are ready for Christ. And this is why the law was necessary. If you went straight from the promise to the fulfillment, if you went straight from Abraham to Christ with nothing in between, you would never value the promise. You would not understand the fulfillment. In fact, without the law, you could not be a Christian at all because you would not see the need for Christ. That is why we should not be too quick to reject the confronting, accusing, and exposing nature of the law. The law was not just meant to punish. It was never meant just to punish. You know, punishment, just for the sake of punishment, has a name. It's called torture. The law was not meant to torture us. The law was a guardian. It was meant to to lead us to Christ, even if it did so heavy-handedly. Now, this image of being guarded when you are too young to think for yourself is something that we can probably all relate to. It's very doubtful that any of us has had a pedagogos of our own, but we've all had parents, haven't we? We've all been raised by parents who told us what we could and couldn't do. And so this imagery is familiar to us. Scripture works with such familiar imagery because it is closest to our hearts. This imagery is shared by everyone. Human beings build on past experience. If your past experience of life in the family was that you were unconditionally loved and given more and more responsibility as you grew up, that will shape how you understand this text. As you grow from childhood to adulthood, you start to see the sense of what your parents teach you. You go from blind obedience to understanding what it was all for. But maybe your childhood was not like that at all. Maybe you were raised by a father or a mother who only loved you if you obeyed. Or maybe it wasn't quite that bad. Maybe your parents meant well, but you had this perception in your mind that you had to obey in order to be loved. Maybe it was something they said. Maybe it was something they did. And and this belief was rooted very deeply in your subconscious. If you want to be accepted, you have to do the right thing. And maybe that affected how you experienced faith when you were small. Maybe you grew up and you never really grew out of that. You grew up thinking that Christianity is all about do's and don'ts and you never really grew out of that. You were stuck with a guardian and you never found your way to Christ. Well, if that's you, this text is pointing you today to God's grace and Jesus Christ. It's reminding you that God's love does not depend on your performance. It never has. Christ has already come. The coming faith has already been revealed in its totality. All you need to do is believe. 
Believe in him. Believe that his perfect life replaces the sinful life that you have lived. Believe that his suffering replaces the suffering that you deserve. Believe that his sacrificial death replaces the death that you should have died. Believe that his resurrection gives you a new heart and a new mind and empowers you so that you understand God's law. So that you see why the Bible is the way it is. And when you believe, all these things are yours. That's why God gave you Christ. He never gave you Christ only so that you could follow him as a good example. He gave him in order that we might be justified by faith. There's a warning in here for parents as well. Are we like the guardian trying to make children learn the gospel the hard way? Are we like the Pythagogos leading children without ever bringing them to the teacher, Christ? Don't make that mistake. Don't teach your children about grace and then make them live out of works. After all, the law was a guardian to lead us to Christ, and the law was a guardian to leave us with Christ. I'm going to look at that next. Now that faith has come, says Paul, in verse 25, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. What does he mean? Does it mean that we don't need to pay attention to the law at all? Should we stop reading the Ten Commandments every Sunday morning? Well, that can't be right either. After all, the law came from God. How can we ignore something that was given to us by God? As Paul wrote in Romans 7 verse 12, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And he's writing that as a Christian. So how do we solve this problem? How should a Christian regard the law of God today? To answer that question, we have to regard the law more closely. have to consider it more closely. If you look at the Old Testament law, it tends to divide into civil, ceremonial, and moral laws. Those are the three categories, and it's probably well known to many of you. Um, an old part of Reformed exegesis. The civil laws regulated the, the life of Israel as a nation. The ceremonial laws regulated their worship. And the moral laws regulated their behavior. These moral laws were summarized in the Ten Commandments. Now, there's an overlap between all of these laws, of course. But in general, these laws tend to fall into those three categories. You could also turn it around. You could say that God's basic law is the Ten Commandments, and those were applied in the civil and ceremonial laws. Think of it maybe as, a, as an inverted pyramid. So you've got the civil and the ceremonial laws built on the Ten Commandments. Now, the people of God in the Old Testament lived in a religious theocracy, that means they were people ruled directly by God through a king. And they worshipped through priests. So as long as they lived in this theocracy, they needed the civil regulations 
As long as Christ had not yet come, they needed the priesthood, they needed the ceremonies. But when he came, that old kingdom was rendered obsolete. And the ceremonial law turned out to be a mere shadow of the good things to come. Now some of you who have been following along might think, well, why are we still using the Ten Commandments then? If the civil and the ceremonial laws are no longer in effect, then why do we still treat the underlying moral law as binding? Are we saying that um, two-thirds of the Old Testament law no longer applies, but one-third still does? Like how, how does that work? We should understand that when Jesus said it is finished, he meant all of it was finished. The law in its entirety, civil, ceremonial, and moral was fulfilled. That is to say, the time of having the law as a guardian was ended. The Christ to whom it pointed had come. All the Old Testament regulations and commandments are fulfilled in Christ. Think of the Passover, fulfilled in his sacrifice. Think of the food laws and the festivals, fulfilled in his coming. Think of the the temple fulfilled at Pentecost and that God dwelt in his people, took up residence in the Holy Spirit, and the the Holy Spirit took up residence in the church in its entirety at Pentecost, is what I meant. And many more examples could be given. All of these Old Testament laws are physical representations of moral holiness moral separation. But the fact that a particular physical expression has been abolished does not abolish the underlying moral principle. And that's key to understanding all of this. The fact that the particular physical expression has been abolished does not abolish the underlying moral principle. Yes, we have a heavenly kingdom instead of an earthly one. Yes, we have a final sacrifice instead of animal sacrifices. Yes, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in the church instead of in a literal temple. But that does not take away from the fact that you are still part of a spiritual kingdom that needs laws, that you still need atonement as long as you live on this side of the grave, and that God is jealous of his people and he will not share them with others, which implies a type of a separation from the world. See, you have to get this straight in your head. When Jesus said, it is finished, He did not mean that God no longer has a law. The law was fulfilled, but it was not abolished. Instead, Jesus brought out its true and deeper meaning. Consider, for example, his Sermon on the Mount. He said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And now what does he do? For the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about conduct and behavior. See, sometimes people get this idea that because we no longer live under law, therefore the Bible has nothing to say to us about our conduct anymore. They say, well, we've been freed from all that. Paul said so himself. But that belief is actually an old error known as antinomianism. Yes, you are to love God with your whole heart, soul, and mind and your neighbor as yourself. But how can you love God if you don't know his law? How can you love your neighbor if there is no direction or guidance? Then you, do, then you become like so many Christians today. 
who after much prayer and deliberation do whatever they feel like doing. For example, there are many Christians who live common law without being married. They start dating, they sleep together, they like it, so they move in together, and they do it in that order. And they say, well, we love each other, so it must be okay. But then love really comes down to doing what feels right in the moment. And in their mind, God's law has nothing to say about that. Well, the fact is, the Bible does tell us how to live as Christians. In other words, the Ten Commandments still speak to us, but they speak to us now as a guide for how to live as Christians. You are not saved by keeping God's law. God's people were never saved by keeping His law. But now that you are saved, the law guides you in living a holy life out of thankfulness to God. Put it this way, how you stand in relation to the law has changed, but the law itself has not. Remember, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Now, this fits with the image of a guardian that Paul uses in our text. If you have a guardian and you are no longer under his care, let's imagine ourselves into, into this position. Imagine that you had a Pythagogos, a guardian who, who um, directed your life, who taught you, who guided you. If you are no longer under the care of the guardian, you still believe in the principles that the guardian taught you, don't you? He doesn't take the cane out anymore and whack you with it because you misbehave. You're an adult now. You're supposed to know better. But that does not mean that you ignore everything that he taught you. Instead, it means that you've internalized it on a much deeper level. And if you're not willing to submit to God's law, the reason is because you're not actually a Christian. In Romans 8 verse 7, Paul writes, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So those who refuse to submit to God's law do so because their mind is still set on their flesh. That is to say, they're not actually born again. And Jesus said, if you love me, you will do what? You will obey my commandments. Obedience to God's law is one of the fundamental indicators of whether or not someone loves Christ. So in the end, we need to make sure that we understand exactly what our text is saying. It is not suggesting that you can ever earn God's favor in any way, shape, or form. That was everything that Paul's written up until now serves to refute that. He's been trying to refute that all along. But the point is also that our text is not just about being free from the law in a general kind of a sense. The point is redemption. Redemption means you're freed from the condemnation of the law because your sins are forgiven. It means that you're freed from the punishment of the law because Christ took that on himself. It means you're freed from the power of sin because you are enabled to live a holy life. That's what it means to be free. We've been redeemed to live a life that reflects the image of God. What does it look like? Well, that is laid out in the law. That's why we need to keep on reminding ourselves of the law, also through hearing it every week. Because faith is more than just obeying the law in general. 
It's more than just obeying the law in the parts where it matches up with what we would already have done anyway. That's not true obedience. True obedience is a conscious effort to find out what is the will of God in a particular situation and then to do it. That is obedience. And that's not an individual endeavor. It's not like we're all individuals having this fight on our own. God called us together into a church community. We do it as church members. We sit under the law together. We work through the law together. We grow up together until, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 4 verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children. That's the ultimate goal of the Christian life, to grow up and to become more and more Christ-like. And Jesus did not leave us to work that out on our own. He didn't leave it up to our imagination or our convenience. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But he said one other thing in relation to this. In that same verse, he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. So ultimately, Jesus promises us we have his Spirit in us to enable us in a life of obedience. That's a spirit we receive by hearing with faith. And when you have the spirit, you don't need the guardian anymore. May God continue to unite us all in the love and service of his son. Amen.